Hey everyone, and welcome back to episode 43 of the Last Word on Sense podcast. As always, I'm your host, Alex Metzger. Uh, got a great episode for everyone today. Uh, the one and only Jamie Noodles McLennan joins me, uh, makes his return to the podcast. I'm super excited for all of you to hear about that. Uh, we touched on some really good topics, uh, including, you know, what the Sens did this past season, what they're going to do this offseason, and, you know, just the, the crucial importance of this offseason leading up to next year. So, um, yeah, stick around for that. That'll start in a couple minutes. But uh, before we got underway, I just wanted to quickly talk about uh, some other news that happened this week that I didn't get to with uh, Jamie McLennan, and that would be the Pierre McGuire firing. Uh, you know, the... I would say it's pretty surprising news, personally. I was not expecting this, considering they just hired him not even a year ago. Um, it became pretty obvious that this was just as big of a disaster as most people seem to expect it would have been uh, when it happened on day one. To be completely um, transparent, you know? Like, I, I think when the hiring happened, the general consensus of it was this doesn't seem like the best idea, to be totally honest. And I don't know, like I, from what I can tell, it doesn't seem like much of what he had influence over went very well. Um, there was definitely some rumors that he was the leading force behind the Michael, or not the Michael Delzato, all of that too, I think, but um, primarily the uh, Travis Hammond trade, which you know, I think people are trying to cling on to as not a disaster, but I would say that trade was still a disaster, even just from the negotiation standpoint of things, which is where I don't think Pierre Dorian should get off the hook, if I'm being completely honest here. Um, I do think that there's enough to be said that, you know, maybe it wasn't Dorian's choice to bring in Pierre Maguire. And sure, one or a couple of these moves might have been backed by Pierre Maguire or pushed by Pierre Maguire, but at the end of the day, Pierre Dorian was the GM, and he made it very clear he had last say on all the decisions. So he not only had to sign off on something like the Travis Hamannick trade, but he's also the one who is the absolute disaster of trading for a third-round pick for him. Um, you know, it was not Pierre Maguire who heard the Vancouver Canucks want a fourth and said, well, we don't have a fourth, so just take our third instead. That was not Pierre Maguire that did that. That was Pierre Dorian, and, you know, Obviously, we all know that uh, the the fourth the Sens ended up getting a fourth the next day, anyways, in the trade um, on the trade deadline day. But I I worry that you know this is going to let Pierre Dorian off the hook a little bit because there's already you know it's the same as every organization. As soon as someone's on their way out, they can't really defend themselves. So all of the mistakes from the previous year kind of get just tacked onto them. But um, it's pretty clear that uh, I think my biggest issue at the time with signing Pierre Maguire is he was touted as going to be this new voice in the Sens front office. And different voices is a good thing. You know, new voices and different voices are a good thing. The biggest thing, though, is I don't think Pierre Maguire was really a different voice. He thinks the game seemingly along the same way as Pierre Dorian and a lot of this front office staff does. And I've seen it tweeted a couple times, and I really agree with the take of, imagine instead of spending however many hundreds of thousands of dollars that probably cost to go get Pierre Maguire, you know, I, I don't, like, I, I can't remember how much it was, but whatever it was, they could have spent that on an analytics team for 
honestly probably either a great analytics team for the uh, um, entirety of the contract or, you know, even just save money and got an analytics team. So I, it's frustrating because, you know, like, and I think, again, it's one of those things where I don't think we can say it's revisionist history, say, oh, of course this didn't work out because a ton of us called this not working out at the time. And it kind of just went with the exact narrative we thought it might in terms of Peter McGuire didn't bring much different. If anything, he brought more of the same extreme in terms of we need bad veteran players that aren't good on the ice, but I like them in the room or I like talking to them, so therefore we need to go get them. And just honestly, a lot of what what happened with him in his role just didn't make logical sense. So, um, you know, I... I don't know much to say other than that on the Pierre Maguire thing. I'm, I, I'm happy that um, regardless of the reason Ottawa isn't doubled down on the experiment, I was very scared that, uh, you know, another disappointing year might have led to Pierre Dorian's firing and Pierre Maguire's hiring as the GM. And um, that's clearly not going to be the case. I uh, And don't take that as I think Pierre Dorian's done a fantastic job. I think he's done some good and some really bad as well. Um, and I think he rightfully should be on the hot seat. This is the last offseason he should have to um, at least put forward a plan where you can see where the long-term vision is for this team because you just frankly cannot go another offseason not acquiring talent to help this team and just say, ah, we'll get better naturally. That's not going to be good enough in the Atlantic division. So um, I'm glad they didn't double down on the Pierre Maguire thing. Um, that being said, I it shouldn't be used as an excuse either. You know, uh, A lot of the moves that happened over the past year, whether that's Tyler Boucher, uh, Michael Delzato, Travis Hamanek. You know, I've heard rumors that he, uh, McGuire, is a bun- behind a bunch of those. But to be honest, I don't think that really breaks the trends of what they've done in the past years. You know, maybe you can say Tyler Boucher just because the Brady Kachuk and Jake Sanderson reaches were a little different, where I think that, you know, when they were called reaches, there was reaches of like four or five picks, not a round and a half. But even then, you know, you look at like Tyler Clevin, you know, and Again, Clevins had a pretty solid time since his draft, but you look at the two picks they traded for him, they've been just as good, you know, in terms of when they've gotten the play for the Toronto. So it's one of those things where I think, you know, McGuire definitely increased the amount of maybe not great things they're doing, but I don't think he bucked the trend or anything. Like, I don't... If you told me Pierre Maguire is going to turn around and, or sorry, Pierre Dorian is going to turn around now and just start making a whole bunch of analytic moves and say, this is what I wanted to do for the past year, but Maguire didn't let me, like, I'd be pretty surprised because I just don't think the thinking was too different. So, you know, I really hope that if they're going to go make another front office move, it's to literally bring in a different thinking kind of person, whether, you know, just a more forward thinker. And you don't need to do every move that that forward thinker wants you to do, but just someone to have them in the room so you can avoid the brutal quotes like back in 2017, I think it was when Borowiecki was just in his middle of hit everything days and really wasn't an effective player doing that. And Dorian was like, well, when one of our analytics nerds say uh, he's not good, I want to punch them in the face. It's like, no, no, no. Like if that's your thinking towards that comment, you need more people making those comments in the room because there's a much bigger issue at hand. So um, yeah, that's all I really have on the whole Pierre Maguire thing. I, it was clearly a disaster from the, a bad idea from the day they signed it. Um, you know, anyone saying it wasn't was just trying to be an optimist. I know even 
some of the more optimistic Sens fans and Sens podcasts out here um, didn't really, you know, make any sense of this one. And it's played out exactly like everyone thought. So, um, you know, no, I don't think there's hard feelings to Pierre Maguire. Like, he's just doing, you know, he loves hockey and he's just doing what he's doing. But um, it was pretty clear just from his radio hits, his on-ice, you know, his analysis during the game. It was just pretty clear that the game's... At least, you know, I don't even know if it's passed him by, but he shouldn't be the main decision maker. You know, again, if you want him as a voice in your room, that's fine. But to me, it kind of sounded like he was the second most important, sometimes even most important voice in the room. And I just don't think that's there's room for that in today's game for him, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, so without uh, further ado, I'll, I'll uh, throw over to uh, my discussion with Jamie noodles McClellan. I hope everyone enjoys. If there's anyone you want to hear over the summer here on the podcast, let me know. Um, I'll probably start going back to every two weeks, maybe three. Um, we'll see just in terms of uh, definitely have a, a podcast near the draft and you know after the draft and around free agency. And then I'll just have to figure out some content throughout the summer. Um, but as always, you can find me on Twitter at LastWordOnSends or at NHLSends and stuff. Uh, you can find all my work at LastWordOnHockey.com and my other podcast, the MNM Hockey Podcast. Uh, that I do with my buddy Chase McCallum. Uh, you can find that weekly wherever you're currently listening to this podcast. So, um, again, thank you everyone so much for listening. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Joining me now, making his return to the podcast, you hear him on TSN for Ottawa Senators games as well as TSN 1050. It's the one and only Jamie McLennan. Jamie, how's it going, man? Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, not too bad. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, it's uh, exciting with all the playoff hockey here. It's been a, I think I speak for both of us probably, but it's been an exciting week watching uh, all the different storylines come out. And it's uh, weird taking a bit of a switch to a team that isn't in the playoffs maybe with how chaotic things have been, but it's been a good uh, good past week of hockey, that's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the one thing is there's certainly a lot of storylines, uh, you know, regardless, uh, the first round is always the first. It's the most chaotic because there's just so many teams and so many uh, moving parts. It's almost like trying to catch up on everything. You know, if you have a, a certain team you watch, then a lot of times it's they might be playing at the same time as another organization you want to keep an eye on. So uh, I think the NHL has done a pretty decent job of trying to stagger times, at the start times. But uh, they do get late. I, I will tell you that. Like, um you know, if I have to work late, like tonight, I'm, you know, uh, I'm doing a panel on the Flames game. So I'm, I'm praying for no double overtime so that I don't have to sit there and, uh, uh, you know, do Sports Center live at like 2 a.m. But uh, honestly, I, I think it's, um, it's, it's been great. And, you know, and then the draft, uh, you, you get into that. Like, I, I mean, for the organizations who aren't in the playoffs, um, you know, that's the, the building through the draft. So that was a big day, obviously, for the Montreal Canadiens, the Sens, you know, where they sit and all that. So it's it's good. But, yeah, there's been some uh, some real good storylines in this first round for sure. Yeah, I've really loved how the NHL staggered their game. So it starts at 7, 7.30, 9.30, 10, because, like, right yeah. now I've got the, the Panthers-Washington game on. I flipped over there when the Rangers-Pittsburgh game went on as I'm well. The same way. The <laughs> exactly, same way. yeah. on background here so yeah no, perfect yeah and that's an amazing setup so yeah i've really loved how they've done it and uh 
I, I'd say lucky for you, the longest overtime so far has been the Pittsburgh-New York one. So at least that was an early game, 7 p.m. Yeah, start. 7 o'clock start, so that'll get you to midnight. But at least, yeah, you're right. At least it was a decent uh, time of a start. But, yeah, it, it, that was a really – that was a crazy game. I felt bad for the goalie, Chesterkin, because it's almost like he hasn't recovered from it because they – you know, he makes 79 saves in a game, and it was the equivalent of two games, and, and you end up losing it. Um, you know, it's been a struggle, certainly for the Rangers who are looking to get back on track here tonight. Yeah. I mean, I, I like, I mean, maybe you can tell us more about that. I, it must be deflating going through such a long game like that and to come out on the wrong side of it. Whereas I can only imagine for a team like Pittsburgh, you, you fight all that time where they basically played two full games, right. And you finally get the win. I, I'm sure the, the highs of that would be quite uh, amazing, but the lows of that, I, I can't imagine how, how much how bad that would feel. Absolutely. And the fact that Pittsburgh won, I think it kind of went to their legs because I, I thought about that. If the Rangers would have won that game, you've got Pittsburgh has, you know, their core is, is older, right? You've got Sid and Gino and then, you know, Latang, like uh, Jeff Carter. Those are guys that have a lot of mileage on their bodies. So the fact that they, you know, played two games in one night and then you're playing basically a day and a half later, um, you know, that was a pivotal game. And you could see that Pittsburgh just gave, you know, if, if people believe in momentum or not, it looked like it went to their legs and, the, and their confidence. And, you know, they really haven't looked back. And, you know, they're as we as we're talking right now, they've played a pretty strong start considering you got to go into MSG, which is a pretty hostile environment. Yeah, absolutely. That that series has been one that I've uh, watched probably the most, I think, other than the Toronto one, just kind of being the local series around here. And, and that's yeah. been an interesting one as well. I mean, obviously you followed that one closely. Uh, any predictions for game six or and a possible game seven? How do you, how do you think this one's going to go? I mean, if you just go by traditional, <laughs> you know, win one, lose one, then we are looking at a game seven. But I think the biggest challenge for the Leafs is the, um, the ability to, you know, break um, some of the precedents that have been set out there, right? So they're trying to break, what, 18 years without a – you know, playoff uh, round one, um, you know, Tampa's trying to, you know, three-peat. There's so many firsts and, and things like that. And, um, you know, game five, I thought was a pivotal game. You're up two nothing. If you're Tampa, you're feeling pretty good about it. And, you know, there was a couple, I call them TSN turning points. You know, I thought you're up two nothing. You're on the power play, you get a five on three. I thought Jack Campbell made a couple of good saves at that point to kind of keep it at two nothing. Um, you know, you score on the power play to make it 2-1. In the third period, Stamkos takes that high-sticking penalty where, you know, Tampa has got an opportunity to, to try and stretch their lead. And even going to the second period, Nick Paul has that breakaway at Campbell stops. And there was just a lot of game within the game things. And, uh, you know, the Leafs found a way to chip away at the lead and then eventually get the lead and give it away and then get the lead there at the end. So it was a good game if you're a fan of hockey, which I certainly am. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, we'll see if Tampa has a response. I think they'll have a response. To, and, you know, the, I think the scary thing is, is we haven't seen Vasilevsky steal a game yet. Like he, I, I, I don't think he's been great. I don't think he's been bad, but I don't think he's been great. So um, we'll see how that one unfolds. Yeah, I mean, just looking at the history, like I know it gets brought up all the time, but just how insane Tampa's record is over the past two years in the playoffs after losing a game. They're, I think it's 18 and 0 or 16 and 0, something just crazy yeah, like that. Like it is. I think it's 16 or 17 and 0, but I mean, that's the thing. The Leafs are 
on the road and they're up against that record. But, you know, that's, that's why you play the games. You go out there and, and, and see if you can, you know, try and change the narrative, change things for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, you brought up the draft lottery earlier. I think that's a great spot to get to into the sense here because uh, obviously they didn't uh, have the luck they were hoping for in moving up in the draft lottery, but that's probably to be expected. It was about a 22% yep. chance they would have got either one. Um, but yeah. you know, the, the Habs get first pick. The draft will be in Montreal, so that's pretty fitting. And and the New Jersey Devils actually get to move up again. That's a pretty okay. uh, pretty big win for that, their organization. I think it was significant. I thought they're, I mean, people, organizations, Twitter accounts, they're pretty, uh, they're pretty crafty. And I don't know if you saw New Jersey's Twitter account. It had that Jim from the office uh, peeking through the blinds kind of, uh, I thought it was funny. Um, it's creative. Um, but it's nice for, you know, New Jersey's a team that I think you got to, got to watch out for. Cause I think if they can get stable goaltending, they got some really good young players there. You add, continue to add to your pipeline. It's a lot like Ottawa, uh, although I, I kind of believe that Ottawa's farther ahead. I, I think we see, you can see the shape of what the team's going to look like, the framework. Now you, now the, the challenge for Pierre Dorian is to, you know, add veterans and kind of, you know, nip and tuck and allow those, those young, that young core to continue to grow and expand, but you need supporting cast that can, you know, pick up the slack on certain nights. So that's the biggest challenge for the Senators. But New Jersey's right in that kind of wheelhouse as well as far as rebuild and all of that and a retool. And, and it's it's important for them to draft and develop uh, real well. Yeah, New Jersey and Ottawa almost did it, not reverse, because, you know, New Jersey's been building through the draft for a number of years here. But yeah. uh, kind of it, they already got their veterans, it kind of feels like, you know, like they went and spent a ton of money on Ducky Hamilton on the blue line there. Um, yeah. Obviously, Subban's coming off the books this summer. Um, they also added Thomas Tatar up front, Andreas Janssen from the Leafs. Um, yeah. Who am I? The, Ryan Graves from the Avs. So they've done a lot of their yeah. work where it's like, it feels like they are just waiting for the one or two young pieces to come through. Whereas Ottawa's yeah. gotten the other way, right? They've got their young pieces in Norris, Kachuk, Stutzla, uh, Brady, obviously, Gatherson. Like they've got yeah. their nucleus there. It's just about finding how to surround it. And one of the big talks has been with this number seven overall pick, what, what should they do with it? And uh, I'm curious to get your thoughts because there's definitely going to be some names on the trade market this year, you know, uh, Brock Besser, Kevin Fiala, those guys are names that come to mind of, of teams that, you know, might not be able to keep them cap wise, or just might be wanting to go in a different direction. And uh, you know, I, I'm wondering if you're Pierre Dorian and you know, you have a couple options on the table, move the pick for uh probably a guy in his mid twenties, I would say that would try and fit this, uh, this team's kind of core, maybe a little older, a little more experienced, but you know, right around there, you're not getting a guy in his thirties or anything, or do you sit and take the pick knowing that there's probably going to be a pretty solid player available at seven? What, what do you think they should do this year? I, I mean, you certainly have to look at all trade options um, because with the cap only going up slightly at a million dollars, there will be some teams that need to, shuffle so there might be some really good players available i would think that and i know this isn't just reserved for pierre dorian but you know teams looking to trade for players you need cost certainty knowing how much how long do you have them for how and how much um you know I, it was interesting pierre's end of the year media availability saying hey, we are going to spend money may not spend to the cap right now but we're you know we're looking to make our team better so good like that's that's a, I think what that does is it tells the free agent market, like, 
Ottawa is not going to try and nickel and dime you. If there's a, a fit, we're going to make it fit. So I like that. I like that narrative. And I like the fact that he was public with that because it, what it does is maybe gets some conversations with agents out there that have pending unrestricted, unrestricted free agents or agents that have clients that they know are going to be moved in the off season. So you get those conversations and that narrative going. So I, um, the number seven pick, I, I think you're going to get a really good player. But again, will they fit in with the timeline of where you believe um, that the team is headed, where the team is right now? Uh, that being said, you know, you've got young guys that are pushing through. I, I want to see what Shane Pinto looks like, a healthy Shane Pinto. You know, is Jake Sander, Sanderson going to need any type of seasoning or did he just step in and to think he's a, you know, I think we all believe he's a top four defenseman. But again, Thomas Shabbat was a top four defenseman that needed to grow on the job as well. Um, you know, Ridley Gregg, like guys like that, that are, are really doing some damage. I believe he's in Belleville right now. Uh, yep. So, you know, you get, you get some opportunities for these young kids, but you got to surround them with the right veterans. And that's easier said than done because you're not signing a guy to be, um, you know, a veteran voice in the room that comes with the package. You got to sign a player that is really good that can help this team on a night where maybe Tim Stutzler is still growing and gets exposed in a matchup, that veteran slides in there. And that's the biggest challenge. I think that's the transition right now for, for the Sens roster is, you know, Josh Norris is going to be your number one centerman, but there might be a night where he doesn't match up well against, let's say, Matthews or McDavid or something. Well, maybe there's another veteran that can, can take that role that night. And, and then give Norris some open space somewhere else in a different matchup. So um, that's a big challenge. And I think this is a huge offseason for the Senators to kind of get to that next level so you're pushing for a playoff spot next year. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've said it a couple times now where it's like, it feels like a lot of what we've said over the past two or three years, or not maybe three, that's a little aggressive, but definitely last year, it feels like it's repeated this year where a lot of the talk last year was, we're going to go out. We're going to add some veterans. We're going to make this team better. We want to take that next step. Obviously, right. that, that didn't come to fruition in the offseason. And honestly, they had a really unlucky year with injuries, COVID. Um, you know, they, they didn't have the year that they wanted to. Well, now, guess what? Yeah. They get another high pick. They get another swing at the bat here. This is a pivotal offseason. And I think, you know, what you said about not just adding veterans, but veterans who can play. Because Early in the rebuild, it was okay. Add, you know, if you were the first thing you were looking at is, is he good in the room? And you worried about the on ice stuff after you could get away with that because the yeah. team wasn't trying to be too good. Right. But now yeah. you need to take that next step and, you know, surrounding th this youth movement with guys who can play um, that that's absolutely going to be crucial. And, you know, I don't, I don't envy Pierre Dorian for having to do that because it's a, a lot easier said than done. We can sit here and go mock Claude Giroux on the second right wing or whatever all we want, but that's obviously uh, um, a lot easier said than done in a, in a you know fantasy world where we have unlimited resources and everything. You're right. You know, you have to, it would be great with a lot of these mock lineups that we're able to draw up with, but, you know, and then when it comes to real life in Claude Giroux, you know, what if he's like, you know what, I want to go back to Florida. I want to go, you know, I want to, uh, and then that just completely kills the narrative or kills that, that avenue. So you have to have, um, in my limited time in, you know, management and scouting and stuff with Calgary, when I first retired, 
there, you know, there's multiple plans. It's plan A, plan B, plan C. And, you know, if you've got a player and a price point to, you know, third line right wing and you want to spend 1.5 million on a two-year deal, maybe you've got one player targeted and then all of a sudden that player is not available to you. So you need, you need layers of, okay, well, it's not that player, it's this player and it's that player. So same thing, general manager, uh, uh, Pierre Dorian is probably going to have a wish list, but the wish list is going to uh, adjust as either interest to the player decides differently. Um, maybe the price point ends up too high where you thought he was going to come in at and now you're in a bidding war and you're not interested in spending that type of money or term. So there's a lot of different factors that come in, but I think it is critical and it's, it's critical. The DJ continued to echo it to, you know, me and John Abbott and Gordon, Gordon Miller, whenever we spoke to him down the stretch, the last two seasons, their starts have killed them. So there's no, you're, you have zero chance of battling for a playoff spot when you go, what, 2-13 and 13 to start off your first 15. And a lot of that was goaltending. A lot of that is the league is uh, loose, so you give up chances. And, you know, if you had from, you know, game 15 on to 82, their record, now all of a sudden it looks, it looks a lot better, right? But you can't, like, easier said than done. You can't just pull pockets out of the, the lineup and go, okay, we're going to forget. That didn't happen. Well, it did happen. So yeah. um, that has to be the focus for the Senators is, you know, the Josh Norris contract, what's that going to look like? Because you, you need him in camp. Because Brady started slow and then he got, he got going. But you don't have – with especially how competitive the Atlantic and the Eastern, you know, Eastern conference is, you don't have 10 games to mess around with. So I, I think that's critical, but it comes back to who you sign, who's available to you and making sure that the right fit moving forward with that young core. Yeah, 100%. And, um, you know, you touched on Shane Pinto there too. I'm, I'm really excited to see what they kind of do. Obviously, the, the wing position will probably be an area need more than the center position because I would say up until last year, I wasn't sure what that center lineup was going to look like. I, I wasn't sure if, you know, Shane Pinto could step in and be a 2C, but luckily he doesn't even have to do that anymore with how good Tim Stutzel looked as a 2C throughout this year. And, um, you know, it's a def definitely young down the middle with Norris Stutzel and Nor uh, Pinto, sorry. Um, but, right. you know, I... I have a lot of confidence going forward in that suddenly. And maybe there's going to be growing pains. You know, you mentioned there's going to be nights where whether it's someone like Austin Matthews or um, Braden Point, maybe on Tampa, they might like right. Josh Norris's lunch or Tim Stutzel's lunch, whoever they're matched up by. But you know what? Like to me, getting that experience now is going to be so, so it's so meaningful when it, you know going forward so they can learn how to how to grow from that and obviously if they're just getting crushed nightly on the ice you want to move them away from that but I think they're good enough players to if it happens one night they'll learn and adjust and I think we saw it at times this year too even you know Stutzel's defensive game it's not perfect he's not a Selkie level centerman or anything right. like that but it took an obvious step up from last year to this year and that's encouraging to see is just something that you can tell he's focusing on working and you can see at least some marginal improvement. Oh, it, there was improvement. And a lot of it comes with education, like an experience. Like Tim Stutzla, I think at 18, 
you know, it was like, hey, everything was new for him. All of a sudden, you get to know some of the buildings, some of the matchups. And then you start to realize, okay, I've had a couple of good summers of working out. Now I'm, I'm, I'm confident, like from a structure standpoint, physically. Now I can win that loose buck battle. Even though I know where to go, now I've got to assert myself physically. Um, his timing was a lot better. I, I think his positioning below the puck was better. That comes from coaching. You know, DJ harping on him saying, this is the position you need to be in when the puck is here. Those are you know, small details of a game. I, I can't wait to see what he's like at 22 and 23 years old because I think his ceiling is higher than anybody on that team. I think we know where Brady's going to end. I think we know where Josh Norris is, and, and that's fantastic. Uh, I don't know where Tim Stutzla, his ceiling is going to be. I, I think we all hope or believe, but until you go and achieve it, and there'll be a season where you know everything he touches all of a sudden finds the back of the net, or you know he imposes himself physically and and you know wins loose buck battles, learns the details of the game, and all of a sudden at 22, 23, he's a real impact player. And somebody, the other team has to build their defense around their, their defensive tactics. So, um, you know, when you look at it, I, 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 yeah, I agree. I'm not worried about the matchups for the most part nightly. But again, it comes back to roster construction. Do they have a little bit insulation on nights where maybe, you know, you do need some more veteran voices or maybe guys who are a little bit stronger physically at that time to, to withstand pressure, especially road matchups. They're the hardest because you just, you're at the mercy. You get your fourth line caught out there uh, on a, on a bad icing. Now all of a sudden you're, you're in one. So it'd uh, be interesting to see how this all folds, uh, how it all unfolds. Yeah. And like injury insurance too, right? Like they, they yeah. got crushed with injuries at times, but you know, instead of letting that derail your season, you look at, um, Oh, and just in the Atlantic division. I mean, Boston missed a couple of their big guys at parts of the year and it didn't matter. Tampa, you know, lost Kucherov. All, I mean, all of last year and it didn't matter. Yeah. Um, you know, lost other guys throughout the year. Matthews was uh, banged up at times throughout this year. And and the Leafs just kept playing without those guys and, you know, and all the teams, you know, Tampa too. So it's about building that depth up so that if a guy like Stutzla, I don't know, takes a shot off the hand and has to miss a couple games, you're not absolutely sunk without him. And, you know, one of the big things yeah. I thought with that was Drake Batherson this year. Like when he was on versus off the ice or not even on the, but on the roster versus injured, it was just night and day how this team was creating. And, you know, I think finding someone so that when he goes down, there's not such a hole offensively is going to be very important for them this year. I, I agree. It's that next man up mentality. Um, yeah. I think Connor Brown had a tough statistical season where uh, there's more there. You know, certainly his desire, his work ethic. Um, you know, the Nick Paul trade was, I think that took away from Connor's game because the two of them killed penalties, they had chemistry, five on five. And, you know, you, you play with somebody for a couple of years and feel good about your game. And then all of a sudden they're not there. Um, I think it, it took Connor a little bit to battle. Then he had the, uh, what was it, the broken jaw. Yeah. Uh, he got the puck off the crossbar. So there was, it was a tough year for some guys. Um, but I believe in Connor Brown. I think he's a hardworking guy. He's a great pro. He's the type of guy that you want in the organization long-term to show these young kids how to play. So, you know, you get back to a kid like Pinto. I, I think the, what worries me is that he's lost a year of his development. So does that, that put him in a tough spot to make the team out of training camp just based on, I, I think he's good enough to play at the NHL level, but he needs to play 
and still have his NHL legs or pro legs underneath him. So he might need 20 games next year at the start of the year, just based on now, if you have depth, you can put him in situations, you know, maybe he plays a bit with a big club and then get the, you get him down to the minors where he can play in all situations. Like a, a real push through development year is for me is I, I think when you look at Pinto is because this year was a struggle, you know, when you've got a kid that's 20 and you, you want to place him in situations that have success and he's not available to you. That whole year is, I wouldn't call it a wash because he's still getting the experience, but it, from, a, from a developmental standpoint, they're, they're, you know, it's a step back because he's going to need to play some pro games. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the last years you want to lose. Like it's right when you see guys growing, you know, that age of, obviously yeah. if, if they're in the league from 18, they're going to grow a lot from when they're 18. But that age of like 20, 21 and 22, I find like, it's just very noticeable to see how much people, and it's the whole game too, right? Like, I think, again, like, I don't want to keep going back to the Leafs on a sense podcast, but Austin Matthews is the perfect example of that, where he was a great goal scorer and, you know, a solid offensive player from the moment he stepped on the ice, his 200 foot game and all round game has gotten so much better as he's gotten into his mid twenties now. And I think that just a lot of it comes with experience, knowing when you should go in, try and use your stick to take the puck away, or whether it was last night, throwing a couple big hits to try and get his team in it. Um, you know, all that stuff matters. And that's kind of just experience that obviously if you lose your 20 year old season, such as Shane Pinto did, it's just, there, there's no time you can get that back. Unfortunately. Agreed. Agreed. A lot of that is just you're evolving as a player. And we talk about Stutzla, you know, Matthews has evolved, um, you know, Pinto will evolve. It's just, he, he needs time. And unfortunately, you know, he lost some critical time this year, just, you know, unfortunately through an injury. Yeah. So, um, you know, we mentioned the Connor Brown trade. And one of the parts I want to bring up about that was actually the return in Matthew Joseph or the Connor Brown trade, Nick Paul trade. I am sorry. Yes. Um, <laughs> affecting Connor Brown. Um, Matthew Joseph comes back the other way and, I'm, I like the trade at the time. I thought it was a pretty solid move by Dorian. Obviously, the contract yep. wasn't working out with Paul, unfortunately. Um, so, you know, you get an asset back. And then also Matthew Joseph, who um, just kind of got buried on Tampa's death chart. You know, like he was a fourth liner there and just never really got the chance to prove himself. He looked really, really good in a small sample size with Ottawa, but looked really comfortable in the 11 or 12 games with a bit of an expanded role. Um, what are you hoping to see from Matthew Joseph this next year um and you know he doesn't have a contract yet i think it's fair to say he'll probably get at least a one-year deal here in the offseason oh, yeah. you know well, what would you be looking for the sense to do with matthew joseph both the contract standpoint and just how they use him over the next uh, season or two I, there's a prime example a guy who's 25 years old just starting to get an opportunity to push through and and show what he's capable of you know, he wasn't going to play ahead of guys in Tampa as far as, you know, he had hit a ceiling there just pushing up in the roster, right? So in Ottawa, there's openings ahead of him so they can play him higher in the, in the lineup. And, and to me, he's a, he's a guy, I think he's a perfect fit because he's a mid-20s, so he's kind of through that, you know, hey, I'm new to the league type of thing. He's, you know, been in a winning situation in Tampa and, you know, he, he's from the area. He's a likable guy. He's high energy. Um, I think he's a lot better player than people expected of him. I wasn't sure. I'd watched Tampa play quite a bit. And, you know, you talk when you play farther down in the lineup, 
your role is different. You're expected just to be responsible or you're, you're expected to just, you know, chip the puck in, chip the puck out, be physical, be high energy. And he certainly was that, but I think he's got more offensive flair. I think he's got more offensive ability and he plays at a high, you know, a, a top six role for Ottawa and you're going to get production. And he, and he had the production until he got injured. Um, so there's another guy. It's a good pickup. He's a good fit. I think Formington has another gear. My worry with Formington is, um, you know, his finish. The like key's a guy who could literally get two or three good looks per game because of his skill set and because of his seed, uh, speed. But does he have the natural finish? I think he's going to score by, um, you know, kind of more by shot volume and not by accuracy volume, you know, if that makes sense. He is definitely quantity know, over quality, it feels like. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that, which is fine because if you're good enough to put yourself in those situations, then there'll be a season where you get 30 goals because everything, you just get that confidence, you get rolling. We saw it, you know, not to bring up the least, but a guy like Mikheyev uh, broke through this year because he was getting those looks and he's got more confidence. So he's fine in the back of the net where in previous years, maybe breakaway and he shoots it into the goalie's crest. So I think Formington has the upside kind of like a McKay of using that speed, tenacity, uh, all of that type of stuff. So, uh, you know, you come back to that roster, Matthew Joseph on that left side, obviously Brady, like there's some depth there and they're going to challenge each other and you can go up and down the lineup. And, and for me, I, I think that's a, a good scenario because if Formington, you know, ends up in that second line left wing, then, then that means, you know, that Matthew Joseph's on the third line, like, you know, like, so or he p- pushes over to the other side. Like I, I think there's an opportunity for Joseph to be a top six player, but there'll be some good competition there. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Mikel Grabner is a name I always think of when I look at Formanton in terms of, you know, he always had the speed. And I think when he was in yeah. Toronto, he, and even with the Islanders, he never really hit like that 15 goal mark very often. And then he goes and plays two years with the New York Rangers and scores 27 and 25 in back-to-back yeah. years. And it was just, he used his speed and everything came together. I could see that kind of year for Formington where he hits 31 here just because everything goes in the net with how much he creates. And I think the one year he scored 20, whatever it was, 26 with the Rangers, whatever, he had seven open, seven, seven empty netters that year, which, I mean, on the stat sheet doesn't matter, but he got paid for those. And uh, the reason why you're out there to, to defend a lead is because you're good defensively. So, and you've got tremendous speed. So that's kind of what Formington, especially penalty kill has been very strong. And now he's getting some looks on the penalty on the power play near the end of the year. So uh, lots of, you know, lots of good things happening with these young forwards. It's just a matter of, as you say, you know, one or two, I think key players brought in to help them. Uh, will add to that depth and maybe take some of the pressure off the young guys every night. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, don't want to keep it too long here, but I would be uh, permiss if I didn't get, get your opinion on goaltending from the goaltending sure. guru. Um, let's start with Anton Forsberg. A very surprising season, I think it's fair to say. You know, a, a journeyman yeah. goalie, and he, he put up an amazing season this year. You know, nine, he finished with a 918 save percentage. Like, yeah. it's just solid all around. And uh, the Sens reward him with the a contract and you know I was skeptical at first uh, I won't lie you know I just uh, a three-year deal kind of reminds me shades of uh, Mike Condon and Andrew Hammond and even Anders Nielsen at times but um, you know it's at a reasonable dollar point uh, 
I, I'm just curious to get, you know, what, what are your thoughts on Anton Forsberg? Not this year necessarily, but what do you project him being for? Is he a, a tandem guy, like a 1A, 1B kind of guy? Do you think he can be a full-time starter? You know, where do you see Anton Forsberg being over the next couple, well, the length of his contract, really? I think he's more of a tandem guy, and not, that's not disrespectful to him. I think he was pressed into a situation where he uh, really responded and was fantastic. And basically, basically, with all due respect to Matt Murray and Gus DeBus, like was the only trustworthy goalie that you were going to get him to the ice that night and he was going to play well. You know, Matt Murray had stretches where he was really poor and then stretches where he was really good and then stretches where he, he, you couldn't get him to the games because he was hurt, you know, like that's – and that's not a – you know, it's, it's just a fact. If your goaltender's unavailable to you because he's been injured, then you feel bad for Matt Murray, but the team still needs somebody to stop pucks. So you kept coming back to like, okay, Forsberg, you're the healthy one. You're going again tonight. You're going again tonight. And he responded. So um, you're right. You brought up Condon. You brought up Nielsen. Um, the difference for me like Condon had the one stretch in Minnesota or in Montreal where he ran and, and played a ton, but I didn't sense that he was super comfortable in Ottawa. He just never, he never really settled into his everyday game. Um, you know, in a perfect world, would you like to see Forsberg and Matt Murray and, you know, Matt play 45, 50 games and same thing. Forsberg played 35 to 40. That means there's a competition in the net. You've got a good tandem there. I'm not convinced. Like, I, I'm not sure where Matt Murray is at from a physical standpoint. Because, uh, you know, it sounds like it was a concussion. It sounds like they kept him out. It sounds like he pushed, you know, the pace and tried to help. We tried to get back, and they basically shut him down at the end of the year. So coming back to it, and this is long-winded, I like the contract because – all I know is, for the most part, knock on wood for Forsberg, he's available to play every night. Where, you know, Matt Murray, are you available to play? No, he's not ready yet. Or, yeah, he's, he's in the net and then he got hurt. And it's unfortunate. He's had a series of bad luck. And I'll just call it that. But, again, it doesn't change. That's one thing in a compartment over here. Matt Murray and unhealthy and unlucky. You still need to play so who's stopping pucks for you? So I didn't mind the contract for Forsberg because you know it's a veteran guy that can give you good goaltending that night. Then it allows um, you know, Sogard, it allows Gustafson to kind of grow at the minor league level and give them some, some, you know, some opportunities to play and not be super stressed out. And it'll be interesting to see. You know, Matt Murray's health, I think, is pivotal this this off season and heading into next season, because then it, it kind of dictates what you're going to do at the NHL level day in and day out. I'm assuming they think Murray and Forsberg will be the tandem next year, but that could change on a dime. So all of a sudden you, you, you might even go from Murray to Forsberg to Murray and Gustafson, where that's a, that's a weaker tandem because Gustafson has to push through as a consistent goaltender. And now he's on, that, hey, this is my first full year. I'm going to have to settle in. And so, you know, he's trying to jump on a moving train where they think they're trying to get to the next level. 
and, and Gustafson would be chasing that. So uh, I want stability in that position. And Forsberg's the only guy who gives it to him right now. Yeah, absolutely. I say Gustafson was the uh, next point I wanted to get to here is New York just rattled off three quick ones I, in this game funny. here, eh? I'm like, <laughs> it's funny. I'm, I, as you can see in the back, like right here, um, I've got the screen, you know, the screens over there. I looked, I'm like, two, one, two, two, and this poor Louis Domingue. Maybe the, uh, the, the what was it, spicy beef and broccoli or spicy <laughs> pork and broccoli. Spicy pork and broccoli, yeah, not the yeah. best. Uh, yeah, not the best. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, sorry. The, uh, the other thing, yeah, I wanted to touch on Gustafson quick because he's, he's on a one-way uh, contract yeah. next year. And, um, you know, I, I really liked Gustafson at the end of last year. I thought he looked really good throughout last year. And I, I would have been okay if he was, you know, the backup for the team this year. And they decided to go with Forsberg-Murray and, and, you know, try and get um, him some AHL experience. And obviously that didn't work out as they planned because Murray was so up and down. Um the unfortunate right. thing for Gustafson was that he really struggled in the games he played this year in the NHL level. 18 games, 892 save percentage. Part of me right. wants to say some of this was because of how jockeyed back and forth he was in terms of there was long stretches where he was either backing up just because he had to and you were letting Forsberg go on a run or he was yeah. in the NHL for a little bit and then randomly called up to the NHL. Um I, I feel bad for him in terms of he really didn't get in a steady rhythm. And I'm very curious to see what they do this year because, you know, he's on that one way. So you do risk losing him if you place him on waivers at the start of the year. And I know Dorian yeah. has all, already almost commented saying they might think about playing three goalies. I don't know how well of a system that would work. It feels like it would be a little, little jagged, but I, I'm just curious to see what they do with Gustafson because I think the most important thing for him is just getting him in a normal role, whether that's backup in the NHL, starter in the AHL, wherever it is, just getting him normal games so he can get some reps in. I agree. Um, I think two seasons ago when he first came up, he looked really good. And then this past season, I think there was some inconsistency. And, and a lot of it too is the team in front of you, like I don't think the team was that strong at that time as far as systematic play. So you've got a, a young goaltender trying to you know, find his legs at the NHL level and the team has given up high quality chances and he's kind of battling a little bit. Um, I do think he has an NHL skill set. I do think he needs stability. I know heading into the playoffs, there was 119 goaltenders that played in the NHL this year. So let's call it 120. So you got 30 teams, 32 teams. So that's four goalies pretty much per team played for your organization. Now I think there was only a handful. I think Winnipeg was one of them where it was just Comrie and Hellebuck. Um, Calgary was just Markstrom and Bladar. Outside of that, you, minimum three chances are you had four goalies or more. So for Pierre Dorian to say, yeah, I could see three goaltender system early on. With the uncertainty of Matt Murray, I think you need three. You might need four. You might need four that you could trust in any given night just based on COVID protocol, scheduling, um, you know, injuries, inconsistencies. It, you know, it, it, I think it's more rare where you see two goaltenders uh, play, play the whole season. And, you know, this organization does not have a horse. They do not have a guy. They don't have a Markstrom. They don't have a Damco. They don't have... You know, name these stars, Shesterkin, 
Saros, guys that play 65 to 70 games. So even in, in a tandem situation, there's two. You get one injury for two weeks, you've got to put somebody else in there. So I think you need three for sure, and then you go from there. So we'll see how it unfolds. And they, they certainly do need some depth at that position to at least contribute early on in the season for sure. Yeah, 100%. And uh, I think that's good. We'll wrap it up there. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a blast as always. And uh, I think, you know, it'll be a busy offseason for Ottawa. There'll be no shortage of storylines, I don't think, to talk about over the next couple months with this team. That's for sure. Absolutely. And I'm sure uh, it'll be busy and Sens fans will be pretty excited about it because I, there is, a, you know, there's, a I think, big things around the corner for the organization. And it is a pivotal offseason. So Pierre's got his work cut out for him, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for joining me and have a great rest of your evening. All right. Thanks. Thanks for having me.